0: Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Jamie Green. Jamie is a science writer, and her first book, The Possibility of Life Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos, has just been published. Jamie, it's wonderful to meet you. You come from Queens like I do. <laughs> yes, I do. So you chose a really lightweight, simple topic for your first <laughs> book, didn't you? Yeah, easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> what prompted you to want to write about the possibility of life in the universe?
1: You know, it's, it's unfortunate how hard that question is for me, because it's obviously the first question that comes up all the time. And it's a good question. It's the right question to ask. And I have a really hard time answering it because the answer is like everything in my life. You know, I can trace the idea for this book back to about 11 years ago when I was in graduate school. But it's also, you know, I can trace it back to the first time that my dad put on Star Trek The Next Generation in his apartment in Whitestone, you know, or um, the first time that my grandfather took me to watch a lunar eclipse. Like it's, it's everything. And I think this is probably a pretty common thing with people's first books, that your first book is like the book that your whole life has led up to, which is very funny when you're then trying to think of your second book, which is like, well, (laughs) it's been about three years since I had a book idea. Got to get new one now. (laughs) But it's like, this is the book that is everything for me.
0: Yeah, they say write what you know, which is fine until you write murder mysteries about serial killers. Right. But, but here you're writing something that's been a passion through your life. And that, as we'll discuss, you're really a big fan of science fiction. You cite dozens of science fiction novels in the book. It, it's understandable that this is a passion project.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. And it's, you know, um, it just really brings together so many things I love that I grew up loving sci-fi. I've lo- loved science my whole life. And so it's, you know, you you were talking about write what you know. That's the opposite of what I love about writing nonfiction. What I love is going out into the world and learning things and finding something new and bringing it to my reader and saying, look how cool this is. Like, that's my MO in all of my writing. But there is still so much of me in this book, not because it's my story, but because it's like my passion.
0: In the book, you say some people are drawn to science by their drive to understand. But what I have always loved most is how science shows us what we don't know, how little we understand of the world, even as we're inextricably a part of it.
1: Yeah. And I, I think I remember being a kid and learning about science, and it was always just full of wonder and mystery. And, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't know what a scientist did professionally. I, For a while, I thought about I thought about being a double major in college, about majoring in theater in physics because I loved physics, but also I thought that sounded really cool. But like, I had no conception of what it was to be a researcher to work in a lab. That's all stuff that I've learned later. So for me, it was that that initial wonder of learning about science, of learning about you know the particles inside an atom, of seeing the Hubble Deep Field image, which shows these uncountable galaxies, just that the universe is so full of galaxies. And it's that feeling of discovering something that was unknown, but that beyond that isn't it's not like when you get an answer in science, you're like, cool, done. Now I understand. You know, it opens a thousand other doors of questions.
0: You open the book by saying, of course, we start with Star Trek. <laughs> and I guess for a generation, now I'm a generation older than you, and I remember the original Star Trek, the cool Star <laughs> Trek. I mean, where where the lead character was named Kirk, of course, right. that was the, right. the greatest thing about it. But you start with an episode of Star Trek with... Now, I'm not a a late Star Trek fan. So this was the next generation Star Trek. Is that it? Yep. This is next generation.
1: Yeah. And and like I said, you know, my dad also, my dad who is older than you, but he loved the original series. And so when Next Generation was on, he put it on for me and my sister, you know, because he was like, oh, more Star Trek. I love Star Trek. Um, And it became something special between us, like watching Next Generation. I was maybe eight years old when we started watching, I think. Um, And yeah, it's. It's funny, like I know later in the show, we're going to get to talking about Scrivener and writing process. But that first line of the book, it was almost like I was writing that to myself, you know, figuring out how to start the book, figuring out how to start the first chapter. You know, I I very often when I'm writing, I write sort of messy stream of consciousness first drafts. Um, and so that first line was first aligned to me, you know, oh, of course we start with Star Trek. And then I wrote the chapter and it was a way to get into it. And I was just so tickled by that line. And I was like, mm, I think I found my first line. And that and that's what I mean also about there being a lot of me in the book, even though it's not my story. You know, the of course it starts with Star Trek. That's because I'm writing the book. That wouldn't necessarily be the case for someone else writing this book or someone else Asking these sorts of questions, but it's it is my point of view and my excitement. And that absolutely starts with Star Trek.
0: These are questions that have been asked since, well, I want to say the dawn of time. We don't know what's before written history. I'm in the UK and I've visited Stonehenge and you go to a place like that and it makes you wonder about all these things. You look up in the sky and you wonder. And this is probably the first real wonder we have as children, isn't it? Yet we're in the position that we don't have an answer. And you point out in the book that there are all these possibilities, but there are a lot of buts, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you say, you know, this is the first thing that we have that we wonder about when we're children. You know, I have a a kid who's almost four and I'm trying to think, what does he wonder about not much yet,
0: you know? Yeah, no, I'm thinking when you get a little bit older, when you reach seven, they call it the age of reason, that sort of thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Like all my son is wondering about is just like how, how big of a dump truck could you make? Um, and what would happen if it drove off a cliff? And he's like in that in that phase of wonder. But yeah, I mean I remember and I write about this in the book too, being a little kid and looking at the stars and having it trigger that fear of the dark feeling, that that bigness and aloneness. Um But I think it's also, it's one of the first kinds of sciences that we learn as kids. You know, you're exposed to dinosaurs and you're exposed to space, um, which are both tapping into these incomprehensible kinds of vastness. For dinosaurs, it's time. We're asking five-year-olds to think about something happening 65 million years ago. What? You know? And, And then when you learn about space, you know, and I, I do experience this with my son, explaining to him the planets. I'll show him for a while. Recently, we've been able to see Venus and Jupiter really bright in the sky, very close together, and expl- trying to explain to him how far away they are and how big they are is it's so hard, but it is one of the first kinds of science that we engage with. And for a kid who's interested in it, there is so much to dig into. I mean, natural history museums and planetariums really cater to this. Um, There are so many books for kids about space. There's, you know, the magic school bus. There's TV shows about it. And I think it's, it's just it's really exciting to discover how much is out there. And I think it is in some ways a human instinct to say, okay, there are planets out there. Earth is a planet. There are people on this planet. What's on other planets? And I say that that's, that's a natural human instinct. But one of the most interesting ideas that I encountered when I was writing the book was that it's only possible to do that imagining when science and culture, um, give you the frameworks. So like before Copernicus and Galileo, um, you know, the, the reigning worldview was that the earth was the center of the solar system and the solar system was the center of the universe and until Galileo looked at Venus, I think it was Venus, with his telescope and was able to see that it had phases, which meant that it was a sphere, we didn't know that the other planets were planets like the Earth is. We knew they were different from stars because they moved differently in the sky. But until Galileo could see them more clearly, there was no conception that there were other worlds. We knew the sun was a sphere and the moon was a sphere, but that was it. And it was only after those scientific discoveries that storytellers started being able to tell stories about life on other worlds. So, when we, when it feels very natural to wonder about now, it's only because like we have the frameworks for it. I do think that before that, people still wondered about other beings, you know, whether it was angels or ghosts or whatever their sort of worldview made space for. Um, ancestors, spirits, things like that. But um, thinking about other beings on other planets, at least in Western culture, is surprisingly new.
0: Well, a lot of what gives us the framework for that thinking is science fiction, whether it be movies or TV or books. And this is what allowed us to have the imaginative tools to try and understand what would it be like if the atmosphere was different and we couldn't breathe? what would it be like if they were you know big insects or tiny little rodents or something like that on other planets?
1: yeah, there's a huge back and forth between um between science and science fiction like you know it was it was scientific discoveries that enabled us to start imagining life on other worlds and then really interestingly you know in the couple of hundred years after galileo and copernicus a lot of those pre-science fiction stories some people will think of them as sci-fi some people don't were written by scientists kepler who is the scientist who discovered that the planet's orbits aren't circular but are elliptical and really just like unlocked orbital mechanics in that way he also wrote this book or story called Somnium in which a man is dreaming and like it involves telling what all of the life on the moon is like and why it and it's very thought out you know it was thought that the moon's mountains were higher than earth's so life on the moon would be bigger he imagines what life is like on the side facing the earth the side facing away from the earth you know and so for for centuries the scientists and the science fiction storytellers were often the same people there weren't such firm boundaries. And even now, even, you know, in the 20th century and today, as obviously those uh, professions diverged, to a certain extent, there are, you know, plenty of science fiction writers who are also scientists. Um, but there is a big back and forth about those ideas. You know, rockets were first written about in science fiction before they were made real. Um, The idea of the Dyson Sphere, which is one of the coolest ideas about advanced technology, which also shows up in Star Trek. The idea that in order to harness the power of a star, you could build a sphere or like a, a spherical swarm of satellites all around it to get all of the energy coming off of a star and use that to fuel your super advanced civilization it's called the Dyson sphere because it's credited to the physicist Freeman Dyson, but he got the idea from a sci-fi novel and science fiction is obviously hugely influenced by science, you know, taking um, either real knowledge and, you know, just turning up the volume or taking it a couple steps farther or, you know, the fiction writer's choice of where to be scientifically accurate and where to stretch and be imaginative for the sake of their story.
0: You mentioned at one point in the book that you don't want to talk about odds, the fact that there's trillions of galaxies and trillions of planets and trillions. and But do scientists just accept now that there is extraterrestrial life just because of those odds, even if we may never actually be able to make contact or have proof of it?
1: Uh, no, not at all. So uh, the only way that that works out is if you're talking about the universe being infinite. If the universe is truly infinite, then just like mathematically there is life on, you know, there are a million exact copies of us even because of how infinity works. But if we're thinking practically, no, not at all. Um, And especially not in terms of intelligent life. That I think is a big open question. Um, I think many scientists would think that it's very likely and, and probable that Simple, single-celled life like bacteria and archaea is common. You know, these are the cells that are not just single-celled, but they don't have any internal structure. They don't have a nucleus. They don't have organelles. Um, and they, for like 2 billion years, were the only life on Earth. And in that time, they developed a ton of chemical complexity, but no structural complexity. And they just don't have what it takes to make multicellular big macro scale organisms the reason that scientists think it's likely that that kind of life is common is that that kind of life arose just about as soon as it was possible on earth like as soon as conditions settled down in the planet's formation it seems like that sort of life formed so it seems like that makes it seem like it's easy for it to form um what doesn't seem as easy is the leap from that kind of life to complex life um, the leap from that to to cells with internal structures, which then, for various reasons, structural and sort of because of how they use energy, seems to be what opens the door to multicellular life, to um, structural evolution as well, not just. Not to be rude to bacteria, but a lot of different kinds of tiny blobs.
0: (laughs) Okay. We won't insult the bacteria.
1: There are a lot of them. I don't want to get on their bad side.
0: Yes. Good point. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you use Scribner. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So before we talk about how you use Scrivener, I want to talk about the publishing process because I've been following you on Twitter and Instagram and the sheer joy that you are expressing of having your book come out. Or we're recording this on the 27th of March. I think your book is out on the 15th of April. Is that it?
1: 18th, 18th. 18th of April. So three weeks from tomorrow as we're
0: recording. Right. And this podcast will go live on, I think it's the 5th of May. So- when people hear this, by the miracle of time travel, the book will already be published, but you're still in that state of expectation waiting for the book to come out. Can you walk through the process of how, after you finished the book, what was the whole process to get where you are today?
1: Oh, sure. Um, For a nonfiction book, the standard way to do it is you write a book proposal, um, which is like, you know, an outline, some sort of about you, marketing, talking about, you know, all your connections and all the people who will tweet about the book when it comes out. It can be a kind of embarrassing process and then a sample chapter. Um, and so that's what you bring to publishers. Um, and I already had an agent. And so, you know, she sent that out to a bunch of publishers and I ended up with my publisher at Hanover Square Press. And then uh, the plan was that I would take a year and a half to write the book.
0: The best laid plans.
1: Right. And this was in the spring of 2019 um i happened when i sold the book to be 5 months pregnant so first that was the first thing slowing me down as i took maternity leave um and then i got to work and then right you know we all remember 2020 so i basically wrote this book over the first 2 years of the pandemic and the first 2 years of my son's life which uh, was challenging Um, But so then that was, you know, we'll come back to that time because that's the Scrivener time. Um, And then I, so I think it ended up taking about two years to write the first draft of the book because there's so much research and writing. Um, And I sent it to my editor, waited a few months, got his notes and edits. I also sent it to a couple of friends who are editors who I really trust, did a bunch of work with those revisions. Um, And from there, you know, and so... I think I sent in the final draft that was going to go to like the copy editors um, about a year after I sent the first draft to my editor. So that was probably spring 2021 to spring 2022. Yeah. And then it's like almost a year of production, you know, there's copy edits, there's um, proofs. I also hired a fact checker. So that was part of the process as well. Um You know, it's just like a big flurry of work for two weeks and then you send it back and you try to go about your life without totally losing your mind. Um, And then (laughs) it just starts getting closer and closer. And even after the proofs are finished, there's still months and months and months of production time because, you know, there's cover design and layout and publicity and all of that. So I don't know. I realize I'm not being very clear about the process, but it's because it's just it's like a like it's. It's the slowest whirlwind you've ever found yourself in.
0: Yeah. And and it's not just the production time. It's the fact that the publisher has slotted the book in for release on a certain date because a novel will do well in September and a nonfiction book will do well in the spring and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. And they don't want to have, you know, three different science books coming out from this publisher in the same month. They want to spread things out. So yeah, I don't I don't know all the considerations that go into that. But I ended up with spring 2023 and and April, and, and it's coming.
0: For you, it's your book. For them, it's one of many.
1: Exactly. Which is a very challenging thing. Yeah,
0: And having worked in a bookstore for a few years, a couple of decades ago, I know the process of the sell-through, where the sales reps come months in advance and try to get you to buy the book. So you've got the whole marketing machine that starts in the US and UK it's often on a 6 month cycle so you can just be waiting and waiting and the one thing i really like is on instagram where you show that you got a, a copy of the british edition that had been in a package sitting on your couch for 3 days <laughs> that you didn't open because you thought it was a t-shirt
1: because i didn't i i don't know why i didn't think it was the books i think maybe it was a little earlier than i was expecting them and this was before i got gotten the US books so these are the first finished copies of my book my hardcover book like a lifelong dream because i was talking about how i loved science my whole life i've also loved writing my whole life and if there is i think the only dream i may have had longer and for i don't know like i used to want to be on broadway i used to want to be an actor but like this is a literally lifelong dream and i just did not realize the books were sitting on my couch
0: how has your sleep been in oh. recent weeks
1: it's been okay. I luckily am a very good sleeper. When I'm awake, my anxiety is I, I just, I'm having a lot of trouble focusing because it's like at any minute, an email could come in from my publicist with some big good news or someone could tweet about having read an early copy of the book and I just feel like I'm always like hoping and waiting. For, and I have like other jobs. I have things I need to be doing. I have a child. I teach. Like I, have, I have work to do and it's Focusing is incredibly challenging.
0: Let's talk about how you use Scrivener because you talked about all the research for this. I can imagine that this was one of the main reasons why you used Scrivener.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I was introduced to Scrivener in graduate school by my friend Becca, who used it. But but I really fell in love with it when I was writing the book um, because, (laughs) oh man, I love Scrivener so much. Um, and, and I say this to everyone, not just when I'm on the Scrivener podcast, because it's it's not just that it's a useful tool for me, but I really feel like it, it it's like an extension of my brain. And so when I know that all of my research is safe and in one place and easy to find, and I don't have to try to remember things, I really believe, and this is me talking as a writing teacher too, I really believe that that opens up more space for creativity in your head that if you're not spending brain space trying to remember, you know, Mm -hmm. who said this quote, Oh, I need to remember. I want to include that quote in this section. You know, like I use it. I do a ton of organization of my research as well. Like a lot of processing of it so that when I'm writing, I remember when I was writing one of the last chapters I wrote that had a lot of, um, Research from books writing about the, um, like the history of thought about, um, life on other worlds. So I write on a laptop and then I have a second monitor. And I think I had five or six little documents of research open on my monitor, like tiled, and they were all organized by, um, by writer, by like the author and by subject. So these are tiny little documents that have maybe four citations in them. But so it would be like, here's, you know, Stephen Dick on people on Martians and here's Goethe on Martians and here's Goethe on Flamerian and Goethe on whatever. And I just like had those up. And so this was like several steps of research processing from the original notes that I copied out of the book that I read, which is also a thing that I do when I read in a hard copy book. I copy everything I've underlined into a document and then I go through and read it again and I highlight the most important And then I organized that by theme. And in this case, I then split those thematic organizations into separate documents so I could have them all open. I didn't even want to have to worry about scrolling, you know, like I wanted everything visible. And it really, it let me be more creative. It gave my brain more freedom to make interesting connections. And it also really helped me feel like I was taking control of the research. So Like when I work as a writing teacher with with college students, one of the signs of a sort of um less expert research and writing process is that the research is in order in the same order that it was in in the original source. So you'll have a paragraph where you cite a couple of lines from page three, and in the next paragraph, you cite page eleven, and in the next paragraph you cite page fifteen. That shows that the order is being determined by the source rather than by the writer's ideas. By organizing everything by topic and having different citations on a given topic all available to me, I was able to just pull the ideas that I needed and really take it a far distance from how it was written about in in the original
0: source. If I can just toss in an idea from a productivity technique that I don't use, I don't know if you're familiar with David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. It
1: is a huge, huge influence on my writing process. Okay,
0: so the one thing that I learned from that, I don't do the whole stepwise thing that he did, but the one thing I learned from that is that when you write things down, they free your mental ram. Yes. And that's exactly what you're describing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I... You know, that is a book that is very much written for like businessman CEOs, but I found it really, really transformative for my writing process. The idea being that you want to take as much of the burden off your brain. For him, it's so that you can be chill. For me, it's so that my brain is totally free to be creative, to make connections, to surprise me with ideas, whether that's, um, you know, a nice way of putting a sentence together or or an insight into how a couple of ideas connect.
0: So how big was your Scribner project? Did you copy all of these documents into the research folder?
1: Yeah, my Scrivener document is huge. I don't know, I can I can check the like file size of you open it. It's massive. I have all of my old drafts. I have transcripts from every interview I did and then nested underneath. So the, what I did for interviews is the main document is the questions for the interview. Then nested under that is the transcript. Then nested under that is the highlights. Sometimes nested under that is the organized highlights. Um, I have a ton of PDFs. Being able to highlight PDFs in Scrivener is huge for me. I got a mouse that I I know this is an audio medium, but I got a mouse with little programmable buttons on the side and I programmed the thumb button with the shortcut for highlighting so that... I mean, this has probably saved me five minutes of time over the years, but it you don't have to stop and think. It becomes automatic, and the more you can make automatic, the more space you have for creativity. So, I have all of my um PDFs sometimes I'll have notes on the PDFs. I often put the notes in the like notes and summary sidebar in the inspector. I have some entire ebooks, and then for books that I read that are in there, I have either the copied out notes along with some free writing and thinking about it. Or if it was an ebook, I export my highlights. I put that in there because if you read on the Kindle app, you can email the highlights to yourself. Then I go through and re-highlight the highlights. I also in my Scrivener project have all of my notes, all of my free writes, any feedback that I've gotten on the book, um, I have a folder called shower notes where one day I was in the shower and I had an idea <laughs> and I ran to my computer wrapped up in my towel and had to jot down the notes. I also had right at the top of my research folder a little file where I changed the icon to a red flag because I love the icons um, called before copy editing, which were the notes that I the things that I needed to do before copy editing. But there was no point in doing earlier, like checking a, a quotation or something because I needed to remember to do that. But I didn't want to waste energy doing it until it was time. And it actually worked before I sent it in for copy editing. I ran through all those things because I didn't have to remember it. Scrivener was holding it for me. Wow. (laughs) I told you I love it.
0: (laughs) No, but this is a really good, because I've talked to fiction authors, nonfiction authors, and and when you're talking about nonfiction, it's such a different process. We talked with Charles Shields in one of last year's episodes, who's a biographer. And I think he said he did three years of research before he started writing. Uh And you're not doing three years, but you are building up all that research before you get moving into the process of for want of a better term, digesting it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I did have to force myself to start writing before I felt ready um, because otherwise I would have just kept researching forever. And so another thing that I have in there is the sort of free writes that I did where I um, did a program called 10,000 Words of Summer where you write a thousand words a day for 10 days. And sometimes it was thinking about the research. Sometimes it was like early pre-drafting. But what I just love is it's all saved in there. So if I'm ever like, mm, I had an idea about something once, you know, and split screen copy, et cetera, et cetera. It's just um, every idea I've ever had about the book that is not handwritten in a notebook, which is very few ideas. They're all in one in one place.
0: OK, I'd like to ask my guest to recommend a book to our listeners. What have you read recently or reading that you think listeners would enjoy?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, re- I just finished listening to the audio book of Merlin Sheldrake's book Entangled Life, which is about mycology, about the study of fungi, um, and about, but it's it's not. It is a ton of science and nature writing, and I learned a ton. But he also looks at how fungi uh, have inserted themselves into human culture as well, and it's just it it changed how I see so much of the world. It's beautifully written. It's funny. It's smart, and I I can't look at a tree now without thinking about it.
0: Have you watched the TV series The Last of Us yet?
1: No, I don't like scary things.
0: OK, because that's all about a fungus infection that turns people into zombies.
1: Yeah, and he does have a large section on that kind of fungus in in the real world because it does, you know, take over, I think, ants or bees or something or grass. I don't know. But yeah, no, I don't like scary things. So that's not for me.
0: OK, Jamie Green, the book is entitled The Possibility of Life. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great.
0: If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to scribnerapp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.